the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Young and Healthy Podcast. My name is Kate Sutter and I'm your host for today. We are on episode 16 of the podcast today. And I am joined in the studio by our very first repeat guest, Dr. Mary Carol Burkhart is joining me today to talk about RSV. Thank you for being here, Dr. Burkhart. Thanks for having me. So we are talking about RSV at the end of September, which we don't typically do. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I, can we just start with a quick kind of rundown on what is RSV? Sure. Um, so RSV is a very common respiratory virus, um, that we see in our community pretty much every year. Um, in most people, it causes very kind of mild cold-like symptoms, Um, But in pediatrics, we pay especially close attention to it because it can cause more severe respiratory illness uh, in young children and especially in babies. But this is a regular virus that always circulates um, in our society and um, really causes mostly respiratory side effects. Again, most adults are just going to have cold-like symptoms, so you may not know you have RSV at any given time. Um, And that's uh, what's a little unusual this time of year is that... um, Typically, RSV is kind of a late fall and winter thing. This year, I don't know exactly what caused it to be a a bit different, but probably related to our COVID pandemic that we have going on um, concurrently as well. We've seen RSV late summer, and um, that is very unusual. It's the first certainly year in my career that I've seen this. And so speaking of um, your career, I realized that I just jumped in because I have so many questions (laughs) about RSV. And forgot to ask you to remind us um, of your role here at Cincinnati Children's and your clinical practice, please. Yeah. So I'm a general pediatrician. I see kids in the outpatient setting, um, both you know well checks, checkups, and um, and sick kids. I am the medical director at the Hopple Street Health Center and also the director of our academic primary care uh, clinics here at Cincinnati Children's. So you're seeing these kids, absolutely. And so we think that it's pandemic related somehow, but don't know exactly how. Um, but because we have seen RSV in the summer, do you, do you think it's kind of changing the trajectory at all? Are we still seeing it now? Do you think we might see it into the winter as well? Any, not that you have a crystal ball. I couldn't do that to you, but any thoughts? (laughs) I wish I did. I think what's interesting. So last winter, it was actually very, very quiet. We didn't see a lot of RSV and the complication or or what we typically see in kids is what's called bronchiolitis um, with it. We did not have very much all last winter. And I think a lot of that was many kids weren't in school and daycare because of the pandemic. Those who were um, masking was, was predominant and very prevalent. And because of that, we didn't see a lot. I think as things probably loosened up a little bit over the summertime, the virus is always there behind the scenes circulating, and it finally just had a chance to pop through as the masking and the social distancing wasn't quite as um, 
uh, ubiquitous. And so that's, I think, you know, probably why we saw it um, come up in the time it did. What has been a little challenging this time around is, you're absolutely right, I wish I knew, is this just going to be a little blip in the fall or are we in for it this winter? Um, and and I, my crystal ball is cloudy on that one. I don't know. Um, but I think it was challenging this fall because it really started coming up um, at the same time the Delta variant was spiking and again becoming more prevalent in children and so we had a big mix of kids getting sick with covid kids getting sick with bronchiolitis we also saw a lot of hand foot and mouth at the same time and it was back to school um and so all that happening together with kids coming back together i think just led to a perfect storm where where we had a very unusual late summer with this so you've mentioned bronchiolitis a couple of times now and understand that that is um a potential complication of RSV. Will you tell us a bit about what that condition is and what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So RSV can cause a variety of symptoms, some very common like cold symptoms, so cough and sneezing and runny nose. Um, And then when it gets into the lower airways, that's when we call it bronchiolitis. And so RSV tends to produce a lot of mucus. And when that mucus gets stuck kind of in the lower airways, um, that that is bronchiolitis. And what that looks like in kids is not only do they have cough and congestion, but they can often start breathing a little bit faster. Um, they can end up in respiratory distress. And while much bronchiolitis is totally manageable at home with really good attention and suctioning and um, what we call supportive care, there are children who obviously get sicker from this and need higher levels of care. Is there any type of um, association with certain age groups and the, you know, the prevalence of them developing bronchiolitis or anything like that? Yeah, great question. So with RSV, most kids actually experience or have RSV by the time they're two years old. So it's very, very common. The kids that are at highest risk are our babies. So kids less than six months of age are going to be the ones who are most likely to be sickest from this um, and develop, you know, and have bronchiolitis. Um, also kids that are immune compromised, kids who have congenital um, heart and lung issues, kids who can't clear secretions very well, those older children would also be at higher risk of kind of the, the more severe uh, disease. So if a family, um, you know, has a kiddo who, who does seem like they're, they might be leaning getting to the point where the, where there's a bronchiolitis developing, um, what should they be looking for that, helps them know that it's time to go yeah, see a doctor? a great question. I usually tell families that the two most important things to watch with um, respiratory issues, specifically like bronchiolitis, is to watch their child's breathing and to watch their child's hydration status. So when we're talking about breathing, things that parents should look for is how fast that their child is breathing. So when kids are breathing really fast, um, that's a sign something's going on. Fever can cause that, but so can, you know, respiratory distress or having, you know, having trouble clearing those mucus secretions. Um, So when parents see that, the first thing I usually say is try suctioning your child. So that's using, you know, saline drops and like a bulb suction to try and clear out their nose and try and help clear their, their airways so they can breathe a little bit slower. The second thing is when they pull when they're breathing. So we call those retractions. But if you see um, uh, the ribs, kind of the outline of the ribs as the child is breathing in and out, or you see their tummy uh, 
going way up and down. We call that belly breathing. Um, or their little nostrils flaring in and out. Those are signs that a little baby is working too hard to breathe, and we would definitely want them to see a provider um, in those circumstances. So that's kind of the respiratory side. And then the hydration side, because their noses and their airways are so full of mucus, they often don't feed very well, and they get very tired. They're, They're trying to coordinate sucking and swallowing and breathing on top of that, and they just can't do all three of those, and they get worn out. And so because of that, a lot of kids don't feed well when they have bronchiolitis. And so if a child's not making regular wet diapers or they're trying to feed and they just can't take the, their you know, normal volumes, um, that's one of the things that we want parents to watch out for and let us know about too. So is RSV the only thing that can lead to bronchiolitis? No, there's, there's a variety of respiratory infections and other viruses that can. Um, RSV is the most notorious, I think, for it and probably, you know, the one we most commonly think of. But there's, other, there's many other viruses out there um, as well. And so with so many respiratory infections circulating right now, um, how are you kind of deciphering between them at this point? Yeah, that is such a great question. And that's one of the things I wanted to say with RSV. Sometimes we don't, we usually don't test for this, right? Um, Because we're going to treat the child the same way, whether, you know, regardless of what respiratory virus caused their bronchiolitis, we treat them the exact same way. So to be honest, it's not that important that we test them because the treatment is the same. So most children don't get tested. Only really kids that we are in like a diagnostic dilemma or it's going to change the outcome and change their treatment would we test. This year, of course, with COVID, that ha- we probably have tested a little bit more because we're trying to sometimes decipher, do they have RSV? Do they have COVID? Do they have both? And some of the symptoms can, can overlap, uh, if that makes sense. It does. Are we seeing flu overlapping too or not yet? Yeah, I have not seen a lot of flu, um, to be honest, and I know our practice has not. Um, I cannot speak for all across Cincinnati, but that, as far as I know, is not, um, thankfully, also on the radar right now. Okay, good. Let's hope it stays yeah. off the radar. <laughs> yes, we need kids to get their flu vaccines. We don't know what flu will look like this this winter, so put in a plug um, for flu vaccine right now. So we hopefully don't have a bad flu season. Because we didn't have much of a flu season at all last we year, didn't. right? And it's the same thing. It was so quiet last winter. It was almost, um, you know, as a pediatrician, you're like, where are all the sick kids? Um, thankfully, they had a good winter. What we're sometimes seeing now is, you know, kids that were born really early in the pandemic are now a year and a half half and parents are saying they've never had a fever before they've never been sick before and those parents are you know you we as as a parent my kid was sick all the time when they were a baby because they were in daycare and exposed to it and so we've had some kids who haven't been exposed to a lot of viruses and maybe that's another factor you know contributing to why we're we're seeing that um now as well I think it's really interesting because, I mean, there are kids who are toddlers now who have essentially been isolated for their entire lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, I mean, building that immune system in those first couple of years was really important. Is, Is there anything that you would recommend to families who do have these really young babies, things that they should be doing to continue to keep their kids, you know, protected, not spread RSV, not spread other things, but also maybe give them opportunities to build those immune systems? Yeah, it's such a great point. And it's a fine balance between those things. Um, You know, what, so as far as RSV prevention, 
um, the things to prevent RSV are the same things to prevent other respiratory viruses. So really good hand washing, um, cleaning toys, trying to keep your kid from putting things inside their mouth. But those are also developmentally appropriate. And so a parent's going to drive themselves crazy trying to, you know, keep every toy out of your child's mouth. I, I totally get that. We have to be realistic. Um, but, you know, not sharing drinks with with bigger toddlers or siblings sharing drinks, thing, things like that um, certainly can help. Um, but I think it's okay that kids, uh, we don't want kids to get severely sick and be hospitalized from this. But again, trying to normalize it that it's not, um, you know, most kids get RSV and have cold-like symptoms and do okay or recover and can be managed on the outpatient side of things. We never like to see when when those really small babies do get sick. We, we obviously do have to hospitalize them sometimes. Um, but most children do great on the outpatient side and, and recover totally fine. I was going to mention one other thing parents can do is get um, their flu and COVID vaccines because by keeping the family healthy, you're keeping your child healthy. And so it's really our children are too young um, for a COVID vaccine right now. Babies over the age of six months can get a flu vaccine. But the more people that that child is around that remain healthy is the best thing we can do to keep that child healthy. What is what is it that we call that um, is it cocooning? Cocooning, yeah, right. And so you want to vaccinate everybody around the people who can't be vaccinated. And so in this case, it's it's our really young kids. Um, and we know it works. And I think, you know, as a pediatrician, I talk to a lot of families because, um, you know, we offer those vaccines in our, in our clinics and we want our parents to to get vaccinated. And when they really start thinking about that, like, I, I don't want my child, um, you know, to get one of these things, that often can be a reason they accept something like the COVID vaccine. Now, when we talk about RSV, there is no vaccine against this one. Um, and so uh, it's really just those other good prevention um, sort of measures. So going back to this idea of the fact that babies are most at risk for developing complications if they do have RSV, is there anything in particular that makes preemies any more susceptible or that parents of preemies should know about? Yeah, so premature babies definitely are at higher risk um, for RSV. And I think, you know, it's all the things that come with being a preemie. They're extra small. Their immune systems are, you know, small and underdeveloped. um, And um, their musculature is, you know, small and underdeveloped. And so they they aren't great at clearing those secretions. And so if they were to get sick, they are going to be the ones who are more likely, um, you know, to have severe um, complications or or to have uh, more severe bronchiolitis. For premature babies there um, and, and other children with very specific medical conditions, there is a medication called Synergis that is an injection um, that is used as a preventative medicine trying to keep those premature babies healthy that first winter and that first year of life. So there is a small subset of children who would be eligible for um, Synergis, and um, that's something that parents of premature babies um, should, should know and ask about. And again, that's not born a few weeks early those are very premature babies who qualify for that it's good to know that there's something out there that families can at least ask about yeah absolutely. and see if it applies to their child absolutely. so what do you recommend for families who might have a member of the family who just wakes up all congested and snotty one day i'm raising my hand because this literally <laughs> just happened in my house um four out of five of us ended up with it yeah. um and it's just it's it's a it's a time where it's a little bit scary, honestly, to have cold symptoms. I, I realized that in all my years, I've never been afraid of congestion. And yeah. now all of a sudden it's like, 
whoa, okay, what's going on here? Um, any, any thoughts on how families, like what, what should they be doing first? Is it come in as quickly as you can get a COVID test, see if this is what's going on or what are your thoughts? Yeah, it is so tricky. And I totally relate because I've had the same thing with my children. And I've told somebody, you know, in previous years, I wouldn't have batted an eye. Like they're fine. They have a cold. It's not a big deal. And this year you just, we can't assume that it's just a cold and we have to take these things more seriously. So I would say if your child has symptoms, which is cough, congestion, sneezing, vomiting, diarrhea, sore throat, fever, increased work of breathing, um, Unfortunately, at this point, you really probably should call your provider for your child. Um, we do, you know, those are symptoms that overlap with COVID. And because we've got a public health issue, we need to be able to exclude or rule out COVID in those situations. So if you have a child who is symptomatic, yes, we do need to rule out COVID. Um, I, that being said, it doesn't mean you have to rush in to see you know, your provider that first day, but, but your provider can give you direction on what those next best steps are. And, and why I say it that way, it does make some difference if your child's going to daycare or school because they're going to be around other kids versus a child who wakes up congested and they stay home. They're not around other children. Um, we, we still might want to know that is or isn't COVID, but it may not be a rush. And so sometimes seeing how that child progresses is going to be very different than, than excluding the child who's in um, group settings. Either way, if your child is in group settings, I would recommend keeping them home so that we're not putting other children and families at risk. And again, it's not an emergency like you need to run to the emergency room and get a COVID test, emerg you know, quickly. Please don't. Um, you know, please call your primary care doctor and ask about next steps and get the timing right on that um, so that you, um, you know, this is like it's a burden to families too. I 100% recognize this. And what is kind of the most efficient way to get this done, um, to get the right answer and get your child the help that they need. Um, and there's so many factors that play into it related to age and some of these other things. Um, it's a really hard time to be a parent because these mild things where, you know, all kids get a lot of colds, um, you know, we just treat them differently now. And not that we are talking about COVID today. That wasn't right. our topic, but because <laughs> you can't avoid it, it's impossible to avoid. <laughs> like it packs everything. Um, will you help run through for us um, testing again? Because now all of a sudden at-home tests yeah. are available. Yeah. Um, they're a different type of test than what like we do in the lab or that, you know, primary care mm -hmm. providers are swabbing in the office, but then mm -hmm. sending to us. Can you just kind of run down for us really quickly? Like what, how should parents be thinking about testing? And is there a good use for each of them or circumstantial or you know, just advice there. Yeah, I will do my best on this. I, I'll be quite honest. This is like, a, it's a hot topic right now. It's a little bit controversial and I think there's lots of different opinions on it. So I will give you my best answer and, and I'm sure um, other people will correct me. Um, but so as far as COVID testing goes, there's two major types, one version being a molecular test and the other being an antigen test. In general, with symptomatic patients thus far, we, meaning Children's Hospital, has really um, focused on the molecular test, also known as a PCR test. Um, and that's, it's very accurate. Um, and so when you have a symptomatic child, we want to know, you know, yes or no, and we want to be able to trust that result. And so that's why we have done that. The problem, kind of the pros and cons, um, one of the cons is it's a little bit more difficult to get and it's more expensive. 
On the other side, there's an antigen test, and these have been much, much more common. Um, the state is sending them out to various schools and libraries and whatnot, and these are more commonly kind of your home kit. Um, there's a variety out there, and not all of them are the same. So that's one challenge with the antigen tests. One could be better or not as accurate, and so knowing what type you have kind of makes a difference. And I think the advantages of that is that they're readily accessible, they're cheaper, and you can get a pretty quick turnaround. So if you have a child that you're trying to isolate because they're positive and you know that answer really quick, that's also an advantage of that. So I think we're seeing more and more acceptance of antigen tests, knowing that we lose a little bit of what's called the sensitivity, meaning um, with antigen tests, you can have false negatives, meaning a child does have COVID, but that antigen test can sometimes come back negative. We don't want that to happen because we have a child with COVID that we need to be isolating. And so that is what makes some of, you know, the medical community hesitant on these because that's not good for public health, right? So um, there are pros and cons in situations to use those tests. My general recommendation is if you have a child that's symptomatic, um, the most accurate test is going to be a PCR test. If you test a symptomatic child with that antigen test and it comes back positive, you can pretty much trust that result. If you have a symptomatic child and you use the antigen test and it comes back negative, they may need a backup PCR test, especially if those symptoms are not getting better um, or we're suspicious, this sure looks like COVID, this sure sounds like COVID, that antigen test comes back negative. As a pediatrician, I would recommend that backup test of a PCR test. Does that make sense? I know it's really confusing. No, I think it does. That was actually really helpful. And I think that I've heard, um, I've heard other people say that, that like with the antigen tests, um, that you can trust a positive, Yep. but sometimes need to double check a negative. Yep. And I think also, so some of this is like one-on-one when I'm seeing one patient in the exam room, I'm working to get that patient the very best answer because we want to be correct. When we look across our entire population of how we're going to manage COVID in this country, antigen tests maybe make a lot of sense, right? Because they can be used so much more widespread. And so there are some public health advantages, you know, to to more widespread testing. Um, But again, that one-on-one situation as a pediatrician, I want to make sure I get right. So I think that's where we get into trouble with schools and knowing, you know, knowing what to accept. People are trying to do their best. And I think um, this is just really challenging. So I think that that's probably a pretty good plug, though, for if your child is sick, stay in touch with his or her primary care provider to help make some of these decisions. Because I feel like I've heard some people who are wanting to just kind of go it alone, figure it out on their own. I'm going to get a home test. We're going to do this. But it, it sounds like that conversation is really valuable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, obviously I'm biased, um, but I sure think so. I think it's, um, and I also say for school-age kids to stay in touch with the schools because there's different, you know, there's different rules at different schools and um, there's nothing worse than frustrated families. So I'm telling them one thing and schools telling them something else. And as much as we can all be on the same page, I think it goes more smoothly for everybody because no one wants their child to have to be tested multiple times or feel like they're getting the runaround. That's certainly not what, what anybody's intentions are. Are, but um, it's complicated and nuanced. And I do think um, the guidance from the, the primary care doctor, though the situations change and every single family, sometimes I feel like, you know, we're calculating the days that their child may need to stay out. They're all nuanced. Um, 
based on that situation, but the providers, you know, should, should know the general rubric and guidelines of, of those things to guide families. And so if a family or if a kiddo has, um, has these symptoms and a, um, PCR COVID test comes back negative, but they're still pretty sick. Um, are you then clinically following it up with, um, with additional testing or, treating it like a, you know, a respiratory virus treating from there. Treating it like a respiratory virus from there. So, so we count on our PCRs um, to be good. Now, if the child's having changing symptoms or, you know, something different shows up, um, you know, that, that may be a different situation. But in general, if we have a kid with a respiratory, you know, what looks like a respiratory infection, that PCR comes back negative, we're going to treat them. They could have another virus just like RSV. And, it, you know, it could be something different. But um, we can't test every child for every respiratory virus out there that's just not feasible or possible. So if we have ruled out COVID, it's we're we're just saying, yep, they've got a respiratory virus, and we know there's hundreds of them out there. Um, and and the good thing is, you treat them all somewhat the same way, which is keeping the child comfortable with Tylenol or ibuprofen, keeping them well hydrated, kind of that extra good TLC at home. But um, there's no medication, no antibiotics are needed for these respiratory infections. They're caused by viruses, and thankfully, most kids have great immune systems. And and will recover um, just fine with a little bit of time. Is there ever an instance where actually testing for RSV to to have a specific positive or negative is an advantage to being able to treat a patient? Um, yes. So we there is a test for RSV. We don't use it a whole lot on the outpatient setting. Um, again, because as I mentioned before, it doesn't necessarily change management. Um, but there are certain circumstances we would use that in, especially when we get into a situation where we have a child that's getting worse or not following the typical course that we would expect them to be slowly recovering. Um, and we're wondering, gosh, do they have a complication? Do they have a pneumonia? Is there something different going on? What is different about this child? Sometimes having that answer that, oh, they have RSV. Okay, we know it's going to take them, you know, it could take them a little bit longer to recover. Um, it will sometimes make a difference in those cases when it helps rule out some other cause. Um, but again, I would say that's very, very much the minority of cases of respiratory viruses. So most, most kids do not need this test. So my, the final question that I have ready to go is, um, RSV is a little bit scary to some families who perhaps have had a previous, um, I guess, experience with it or previous experience with RSV that turned into bronchiolitis. Um, what would you say to those families that hear those, that hear that uh, that acronym and get a little tense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very understandable because if you've had a child who has had RSV, you know what what came with that. And as a parent, when you respiratory stuff is really scary. You want your child to breathe normally, and when they're breathing faster or struggling to breathe, that prob you know that is one of the most scary things um, that you can watch as a parent. And I think it's also a little bit challenging because. Um, there's no quick medication or quick fix for this. And so as a parent, you're standing by trying to support your child through this illness, which means suctioning, 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 and just trying to keep your child hydrated, which is slow and tedious and um, is not very satisfying, quite honestly. And so when parents have had a, a baby who needs to be hospitalized and you've seen your infant struggle to breathe and go through that, um, sometimes those babies even need oxygen. I've, I forgot to mention that, but that's really the only other treatment 
treatment when if they can't keep their oxygen level up, we would we would use oxygen for them. Um, it's hard as a parent to stand by and, and watch that. So um, I totally understand um, that that feeling as parents. And um, you know, the biggest thing that I would say again, many kids don't get that sick, um, but but parents are our eyes and ears. And so I always you know t- try and take a parent's word um, if they're describing what they see their child breathing, you know, at home, that that's what it is. And this is very scary. So, um, I think helping support parents through that as best we can. I always tell parents, I hate to tell them that their kid has bronchiolitis because I know there's not a quick fix to this one. And though the worst, kind of the peak, um, the worst symptoms from bronchiolitis typically peak somewhere around day three, four, five for kids, the symptoms can linger for weeks. And I think that's the other thing that really worries parents. I get so often they come in three weeks later and they say, my kid is still coughing. What's wrong with them? Like, is do they have an immune problem? Is there something wrong with them because they have not gotten over this? And um, unfortunately, this one is really long lasting. These symptoms can last six weeks in some kids. What we are looking for is that they are slowly and steadily improving and that the child is not worsening past that kind of peak um, period of time usually. So um, just a lot of understanding that there is good reason that some parents are are very fearful of this. And um, we understand that the best thing parents can do, again, trying to keep um, keep their kids as healthy as possible is just going back to the old school stuff of washing hands, don't let sick people around your child um, whenever possible. So as a final, I, I thought that was everything I had, but as a final follow-up to, um, to that excellent explanation, knowing that some kids can develop the bronchiolitis and the trouble breathing or the, the respiratory distress, um, it, is there is there a point at which it makes more sense to go to the emergency department than to try to make an appointment with the primary care provider? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a little hard to answer in words as opposed, I wish I could show pictures of babies. Like if your baby looks like this, yes, um, that would, we need a video podcast for this. Um, so I will try my best to answer in words. Um, if you have a baby that... Um, certainly is changing colors or is what we call apneic, meaning taking like pauses in their breathing. Absolutely. That's, that's an emergency call 911 for that. Um, otherwise babies who are becoming, um, like very tired and lethargic, um, difficult to wake up to feed, um, are breathing so fast. They sometimes wear themselves out. And those are the babies that I would say we are most worried about. Um, they should probably go straight to the emergency room. And then same with kids that are in um, what we call severe respiratory distress, which I know is hard to describe. But um, so you have tried suctioning, you have tried these home things, or maybe you've seen your pediatrician and they've walked through these things. And despite all those best things you've suctioned, you've suctioned, and that child is still breathing very rapidly. Um, and you're having the you know retractions with the ribs flaring in and out. And you've done all the things that your primary care doctor you know does. There are absolutely some babies who need you know, need to go to the emergency room because they progress to the point where they need hospitalization. So I don't want parents in any way to feel bad. Um, you know, this is important stuff to pay attention to. And when you have a baby that's showing those signs, um, the emergency room is totally appropriate. Thank you for that fantastic words explanation. I agree with you. We, we have some videos somewhere, I think, of what the retractions look like. 
that we'll try to add as resources as well, because that can be really helpful if you've never seen it before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I always say, when you see that, the first thing to do is try suctioning that baby, because a lot of times suctioning and repositioning the baby will, will uh, improve those things. And if they're not improving, that's when the baby needs to see a medical provider. Fantastic. Thank you for all of this conversation. It has been so incredibly helpful. You've answered so many of my questions, and I hope that we've answered plenty for uh, families who may hear this as well. Um, thank you again for joining us yeah, today. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. And we will see you all next week on the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great day. This episode was recorded on September 30th, 2021. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco. This episode was produced by Symphony Pitts. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.